Good morning. It's nice to see you. The Baileys are still out of town on vacation, so I have the privilege of preaching to you this morning. Um, And we will be in Psalm chapter 10. Um, This is an appropriate psalm. It's a sobering psalm. It's one of the psalms that we give the term, the label to, imprecatory psalms. Anybody tell me what imprecatory means? Oh, not even Liam. Liam's over there shaking his head. What does imprecatory mean? These are psalms declaring or asking for God's judgment on his enemies. They're kind of weird psalms to read because they say things like, break the arm of the wicked, Lord. And they're prayers that we don't usually think about being very Christian things to say uh, because it sounds kind of violent to call on God's judgment like this. But there are many, many psalms that do this. It's actually hard to read a psalm in the Old Testament, without there being something about the destruction of God's enemies. And we have a big fancy theological word for these is imprecatory psalms. Imprecations are declarations of curse and judgment on someone. So Pastor Belcher read this to us. I won't read through the whole thing again, um, but we'll kind of work our way through the psalm um, as we go. Um, and I want us to see, first of all, that this psalm comes to us in three big sections. Okay, So there's a first section that's just Really the first verse, kind of the first two verses. Can you click through this as I preach there, Isaac? So if you go back to verse 1, the psalm starts with a crying out to God, a question, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And this first section of the psalm, the psalmist complains to God because of the oppression of wicked men. And this goes on with a description of their wickedness. And that goes all the way through verse 11. And then there's a second section of the psalm. It starts in verse 12, where the psalmist beseeches God for help, cries out to God, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, do not forget the afflicted. So it goes from sort of a description of how things are and the awfulness of the oppression of the wicked. And then it shifts in verse 12 to a crying out to God to rise up. You'll see this in the Psalms. Rise up, O Lord. And this continues for four verses through verse 15. And then we have a final section in verses 16 through 18 where the psalmist comforts himself and us as we read God's Word with the hope of God's rule and final justice. The Lord is King forever and ever. Nations have perished from His land. So I want to work through these sections, but that's just sort of a big bird's eye view of three things that are going on in this psalm, and we'll work through them. So section one, starting in verse one, is the psalmist complaining to God because of the oppression of the wicked. Now it's important to point out that Psalm 10, I I think, is really a continuation of Psalm 9. Now we didn't really read all of Psalm 9 today, but if you read Psalm 9, there's a direct connection. And in fact, Psalm 10, you know how a lot of the psalms have a little heading, you know, a psalm of David. Uh, the Song of, Sol- or Psalm of Solomon. Psalm 10 doesn't have one, which is kind of unusual, and it kind of follows right on the heels of Psalm 9, which does tell us it's a Psalm of David. And I think Psalm 10 is kind of part two of Psalm 9. Psalm 10 answers questions that naturally arise when we read Psalm 9. Psalm 9 is about how wonderful it is that God's enemies are destroyed, that the Lord is a righteous judge, in that he is a stronghold for the oppressed, that he has not forsaken those who seek him, that he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And Psalm 9 ends with this, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. But this sort of creates a question in our mind. We read Psalm 9 and we think, yeah, it's great that God vindicates the oppressed. But we have a question which is, well, what's the deal? We look around us and we see oppression and bloodshed. How can, God, how can we say that God is the vindicator of the oppressed when we look everywhere and we see suffering and affliction and oppression? And actually, Psalm 10 begins with that very question. It's an acknowledgement of the feeling of God being distant. Okay, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? 
There are several psalms, Psalm 6, Psalm 13, which have this question, how long, O Lord, till you show up, basically is the question that the psalm is asking. And these questions make sense when God's wonderfully righteous and just character has been declared to us in Psalm 9. When God's care for the afflicted is proclaimed, we rejoice. And we go, but wait a second, there are still afflicted who don't seem to be getting any help. And God doesn't feel like he's very near. Hence the question, why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself? Now, I think we think it's unspiritual to even speak as if God might be far away. Okay, We read this and kind of think, oh, I'm not supposed to have these thoughts of God. I'm not supposed to ask God why he's far away. I think we might think that the only truly spiritual and godly thing we're ever allowed to say is, well, God is near. Salvation has come. He's right under your nose, just waiting to have a personal relationship with you if you'll look. He's just waiting there. But the psalmist is not actually doubting the reality of the gospel or of the doctrine of God's omnipresence. Okay, We know God is everywhere. I don't think what the psalmist is doing is questioning, well, is God really everywhere? What question is he asking? Well, I think David, let's assume this psalm is written by David, I think David is demonstrating actually great faith here. And one of the ways we see faith in the question, even in the question, why do you stand afar off, O Lord, is who's the question addressed to? It's addressed to God, to the Lord, right? So David feels like God is far away. And what does he do with that feeling of God's distance? What could he do? God, always feeling far away. Whatever. I'll just take matters into my own hands. No, but David demonstrates faith here by coming to the Lord with this feeling of the distance of God and asks God himself why he seems to stand far away. And we know that there is no doubt in David's mind, if we read Psalm 9 again, that it is in God's character to judge. That God does in fact punish the wicked and cause them to fall into their own plots. Okay, that's Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 as we'll see. Think of Haman, right? Haman, the story of Haman in the book of Esther is one of my favorite dramas in scripture that you have this wonderfully delightful flipping around of everything on its head, right? Haman makes all of these plans of how he's going to destroy Mordecai the Jew. And the best part is when he goes to the king and the king says, Haman, what should I do for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman thinks, right? Oh, he must mean me. Well, you should give him the king's robe and set him on the king's donkey. And, and the king says, perfect. Do it for Mordecai, right? What a beautiful orchestration of God to make the wicked suffer and the righteous lifted up. Okay, we have many examples of that in Scripture. And we know that this David believes this. David himself was so patient in waiting on God for God to remove Saul when the time was right. David many times could have taken matters into his own hands and killed Saul and said, hey, I'm the anointed of the Lord. Let me just take care of this. But David waited on God and was very patient. The psalmist knows God is just in that he cares for the oppressed and rescues them. Psalm 9.12 said, He who requires blood, or he who avenges bloodshed, remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Okay, This is the truth we have to hold on to. God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And it's out of the context of seeing God's character and His justice that David cries out in Psalm 10, Where are you, God? Why are you withholding your presence? How long till you bring about your judgment? In other words, David's full expectation is that God will bring about judgment. And the question in David's mind is not if God is really going to judge, but when God will judge. And this is an appropriate prayer for the Christian. It's right for the Christian to cry out for God's judgment. Like I said a minute ago, 
It's right for us to cry out for God's judgment rather than taking matters into our own hands. Right? Someone might afflict you and harm you and be violent against you. And it's very tempting to take matters into our own hands, right? And get back at them when someone hurts us. But that's not the right response, right? Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left as well. How in the world can you do that? How can you turn your other cheek to someone who has just hit you? Well, the way that we do that is by turning to God and say, God, would you please judge wickedness, not me? We might take matters into our own hands. We might give ourselves to cynicism and apathy and just stop praying and turn away from the Lord and think, well, it's hopeless. This is how the world is. Things are bad. What can you do? Or we can put our hope in some earthly leader. This might just be a different form of taking matters into our own hands as finding some champion or or someone who we think is going to bring about justice. But it's right for the Christian to cry out to God for judgment and to wait on God for the fulfillment of His promises. Faith in God's promises is demonstrated through prayer. This is how we demonstrate our faith. It shows that we're content for Him to carry out His will in His time when we pray. But not only that, God is pleased, and this is very important, God is pleased to bring about the fulfillment of His promises through what? Through the prayers of his people. Think of fathers and mothers feeding their children at the table. Your parents make you ask for things at the table. Why do you think they do that? Are your parents just mean and want to show you that you're dependent on them? No, one of the things we delight in as parents is when our children ask for things, giving them things. And sometimes we'll withhold things from our children until they ask and then delight to give it to them. Yeah, to show their dependence. But we love to provide for our children, especially when they come to us humbly asking. And God is the same way. Sometimes He will withhold things until we acknowledge our need for Him and come and ask. And then He's delighted to accomplish His will through His people praying. Which is a wonderful thing. That God could just act and do everything He's going to do without us apart from His people. But He works through the prayers of His people to bring about His will and His judgments. We have many examples of this in Scripture which teach us this clearly. Think of James 5. Uh, James points back to Elijah, right? When he says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Remember what Elijah prayed? Elijah prayed two things that James reminds us of. First, he prayed a bad thing. Elijah prayed that there would be no rain. And there was no rain. Because Elijah prayed. Okay, It was God's will, but God was pleased to work through Elijah to make that happen. And then the reverse happened. Later, Elijah prayed and rain came. Actually, Elijah had to pray a few times for it to happen. And he kept telling his servant to go, go look, has anything happened yet? No, okay, I'll pray again. Go look, has anything happened yet? No, okay, I'll pray again. And then finally, a cloud, I like this, a cloud the size of a man's hand coming up. And Elijah knows it's time that the rain is coming. Abraham prays for God's mercy on Sodom to reduce God's judgment and to not wipe away the righteous with the wicked. And God answers Abraham's prayer and delivers Lot and his daughters from the fire. Jesus himself prays for Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Prayer really accomplishes things. Prayer thwarts Satan, we learn from Jesus. We prayed just this past week that God would heal and protect Meg. And here she is. This is an answer to prayer. Um, And we, I don't want to speak for everybody, I'm pretty awful at remembering or noticing God's answers to prayer. But If you stop and think about it, a number, a little while ago, I stopped and when we were praying, as we do every night, that God would keep us safe through the night and watch over our house. I just had this realization. 
God has kept our house safe hundreds, thousands of times as we've prayed. Every single time we've prayed this prayer, God has answered it. And this is God's kindness and His fatherly care for us. And prayer does accomplish things. And yet there are many unanswered prayers that we're still waiting on, aren't there? There are many prayers you're even praying daily now that God has not granted your request. Where do we go when that's the case? Well, Psalm 10 is one of the places in Scripture that we can go when God has not given us our requests yet. The psalmist here, David, is wrestling with the feeling of God's apparent distance. Again, he's not questioning that God, whether or not God's really there. But he's questioning the seeming absence of God's judgment in particular. This is the presence that David wants to feel of God is his judgment. He's questioning why God is withholding his wrath when he has promised that he will judge the wicked and vindicate the oppressed. And there is great reason to cry out to God. Let's work our way through this description of the wicked which starts in some verse. Um... I think it starts in verse 2. Go up to verse 2. Yes, yeah. In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Hotly pursue the afflicted. If we have our eyes open, or if you're on social media, we see this true in our day. And I am going to talk for a while about the wickedness. It's hard to come to this psalm and not think about the wickedness of abortion and the killing of children in their mother's wombs in our land. And I think that is the greatest wickedness of our day, one of the greatest wickednesses in all of history. And so it's fitting to see that through the lens of Psalm 10. You have the vile, hot pursuit of the destruction of the innocent. And we as a culture have become more and more brazen in our pursuit of the death of the unborn. That there is no shame. There used to be shame. Abortion, the killing of children in their mother's wombs used to be sort of hidden in the dark. And now it's something that is celebrated and promoted, right? There's been a progression from a sort of shamed pursuit of wickedness to a hot pursuit of the destruction of the innocent. We see this in the, the way that people speak about it. Um, that they are proud of the fact that they have murdered their own children. David prays, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Like Haman. This is a common way of God judging the wicked. It's a common prayer of imprecation in the Psalms that God would make the wicked just be caught in their own plots, Lord. And again, this is a way of looking to God for judgment and not taking matters into our own hands is to ask God to just turn their plots, their wickedness, their violence on their own heads. Now there's not a much clearer example of this than the slaughter of our own children. It is its own judgment. In Exodus 23-26, God promises to bless His people and He says, there shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. Doesn't that sound wonderful? That was God's promise of blessing on His people if they sought Him is that there would be no miscarriage or barrenness. On the flip side, the prophet Hosea, in Hosea 9, listen to this. I'm going to read a few verses, but it's important to listen. This is Hosea prophesying about the people Israel. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. This is God's love for His people and their fruitfulness. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. You guys remember anything about Baal Peor? That's where Balaam shows up in Numbers. And the people give themselves to immorality and idolatry. They came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. And they became as detestable as that which they loved. As for Ephraim, now when you're reading the Old Testament prophets, Ephraim means Israel. Okay, the northern kingdom of Israel. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. 
So you have on one hand God's blessing, freedom from miscarriage and barrenness. And on the flip side, you have God's curse. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. The removal of children is a sign of God's judgment. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre, but Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Abortion is its own judgment. We proudly set ourselves against God. And yet, our children are being put to death. Led out to slaughter. And it is a sign of God's judgment. Along with this, or, or where this wickedness proceeds from, is this statement that their, their thoughts are always, there is no God. Right? All his thoughts are, there is no God. This is a denial of God's presence and God's awareness. A denial that God's going to do anything about it. It is no fear of God. And what does this look like? Well, we see in verse 5, we see confidence in earthly prosperity, ignorance of God's judgments. We look at the wicked and we think his ways prosper at all times. You put verse 5 up there, Isaac. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. Okay, this is the wicked who feels secure in his earthly prosperity. It goes on in verse 6. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. This vain, proud confidence in our own strength and in our own plan. And then that proceeds to curses and deceit and oppression in verse 7. So it begins with just ignoring God. You know what? He feels distant. I'm going to go about my own way and my own plan. Which results ultimately in cursing God and deceit and oppression of others. Now listen to this. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten it. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. We keep talking about the slaughter of our children. It happens in the lurking places of the villages. It happens right downtown. There's a Planned Parenthood. It happened in Bloomington. It's just right there, next to some other, you know, next to a restaurant and next to this other thing. It sits in the lurking places of the villages and kills the innocent. There's no one more innocent on the face of the earth than a child in his or her mother's womb. It is the definition of innocence. Yes, there's original sin there, but even Scripture talks about uh, Jacob and Esau before they had done anything wrong while they were still in the womb, right? Before they had had a chance to make a choice. These are innocent children whom we put to death. Their eyes watch stealthily for the poor. This is true. I looked this up in a uh, a testimony before Congress back in 2015. I, f I first dug into this psalm back in 2015 when the videos came out about Planned Parenthood buying and selling selling body parts of killed babies. And uh, this was a, a testimony before Congress from some woman, the president of the American Constitution Society. She said, Planned Parenthood health centers are particularly crucial for poor women in this country. More than half of Planned Parenthood's 2.7 million patients each year rely on public health programs such as Medicaid to cover their costs. Um, and 78% of Planned Parenthood's patients live with incomes of 150% of the 
uh, incomes 150% of the federal poverty level or less. Indeed, in 68% of the counties of the Planned Parenthood Center, Planned Parenthood serves at least half of all safety net family patients. Planned Parenthood is an integral part of the healthcare system in this country. It provides critical healthcare services to many women, particularly poor women, who might otherwise go without these services. This is lurking to catch the afflicted and the poor and the needy. There is no better example of it in our day. And it is like a lion crouching. There's this interesting little, uh, in verse 10, it says he crouches, he bows down. It's describing a lion, okay? Now, you've probably heard me tell this before, but one of the only times I ever had my life flash before my eyes was that was at one of those big cat preserves. And we're walking around this exterior fence where inside just looks like a savanna. It's just acres of tall grass. And I walk up to this chain link fence, just sort of looking, hoping to see, you know, a wild animal. And suddenly, just like that, there's a lion at the fence. I had not seen it. I had not heard it. I was there, and I would have been dead if there had not been a fence right there. And a lion just appeared out of the grass, sort of lunged towards the fence in my life. It was terrifying, right? And this is the lion crouches and bows down, right? Now, it's interesting. Uh, this is a, a strange thing to translate the Hebrew here. It can actually mean like he bows down and makes himself seem humble. Okay, he makes himself low. He, he humbles himself. And this is the case. You have Planned Parenthood as a great example of a, a nice pink sign called Planned Parenthood. I remember as a kid, my mom making some derogatory remark about Planned Parenthood and me thinking, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Yeah, I don't even know how old I was, but I remember this, just the name. My mom was speaking, rightly speaking, evil of it. And I heard that and I thought, well, why is she saying something bad about something that sounds good? And I knew nothing, right? I was just a kid. But that's how subtle and cunning it is and how easily deceived we are. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. It's all of this evil is rooted in a denial of God's judgment, in a denial of God's awareness, his ability to see. And even this is prevalent among Christians today. We are often ashamed of God's judgment. I remember going on campus at Indiana University to see a big debate between an atheist uh, professor and a Christian professor. And, and I remember the Christian professor continually sort of speaking uh, shamefully and dismissively of wrathful deities who throw lightning bolts. Okay, that was like his placeholder for, you know, silly Greek gods who are not real. And of course, what he wanted us to think was Zeus, but he never said Zeus. He just said wrathful deities. This is a Christian speaking. Speaking dismissively of wrathful deities who throw lightning bolts at people. And of course, what is every unbeliever or even believer there sitting there thinking? Well, okay, God shows wrath. His wrath is revealed from heaven. Okay, but if this Christian up here is saying we shouldn't believe in wrathful deities, then God must not be wrathful. This is awful. And this is the root of this sin of bloodshed and murder, is the thinking, well, God, God's not going to do anything about it. God's not, God doesn't care, or he doesn't see, or he's just sad about it, but he's not going to do anything about it. And thus we continue in our murder. All of this describes the wicked today. And you might say, okay, we get it. It describes the wicked today. But surely, Psalm 10 isn't how we should pray about the wicked. I mean, you're right. Abortion is really bad. But that doesn't mean we should be praying this prayer. You know, in David's time, maybe under the dim light of the Old Covenant, under the theocratic government of the Old Testament people of Israel, it made sense for David to pray this way. But we live in the gospel age and things are different. We're supposed to love our enemies now, not pray for their destruction. 
Okay, you feel the tension? Well, we get to section 2 of this psalm, which starts in verse 12. And the psalmist cries out to God to act. And I want to show you that this psalm, Psalm 10, is a prayer driven by fully formed faith in God. And not just the fully formed faith of an Old Testament believer in God's promises. It's the prayer of a Christian. Okay, we are reluctant to pray this psalm. We come to it in our Bible reading and we recoil and immediately want to hyper-spiritualize it and say, well, yeah, I, I pray that God would break Satan's arm. You know, that would be good. I'm against Satan. And I hope God crushes the spiritual forces of darkness. But if you're honest with yourself, that doesn't quite cut it. It's a little too uh, nitty-gritty to feel like this is just spiritual, isn't it? We have to make a choice. This is either a prayer of faith, or it is a sinful prayer, which is not praying in accordance with God's commands to love our enemies. Okay? Now, there are some famous people who have taught this. C.S. Lewis. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis. The reaction of the psalmist to injury, though profoundly natural, is profoundly wrong. Okay, that's Lewis. Lewis is profoundly wrong. Okay? He couldn't wrap his mind around how a Christian, a believer in God's mercy, could pray, break the arm of the wicked. And before I get to talking more about that, I want to just point out that as you read our fathers in the faith of the past, as I read old dead guys, as we like to say on this passage, I realized that our reluctance to pray this way is relatively new. Okay? None of the older commentaries I read on this psalm even felt the need to process the question, but wait, how can I pray this prayer if I'm supposed to be loving my enemies? That doesn't sound like gospel love for my enemies. But if you read gospel-centered men like Charles Spurgeon and John Calvin, they just treat this psalm like it's the most normal thing in the world to cry out to God for his judgment. So realize, first of all, that it's only in a day when we've begun to widely question the reality of hell and the severity of God's judgment that we even ask the question of whether or not we should pray this prayer. Faithful men and women of the past came to this passage with no hesitation of receiving it as God's word, as direction for the prayers of His church. It is a prayer of faith. But let's ask the question, how can such imprecations be of faith? Well, first of all, remember that one of the things we believe in as Christians is God's judgment. We just said it. I don't remember if we said it, in, what the words are in the Nicene Creed versus Apostles' Creed, but we confess every week, He will come again to, what? Judge the living and the dead. This is, this is central to our faith as Christians. This is one of the things we believe he, Christ, will come again to judge the living and the dead. I think sometimes we easily fall into thinking that to believe the gospel is to stop believing in God's righteous judgment. God was a righteous judge, but thankfully he sent Jesus to die to overcome his justice. But faith or belief, trust, confidence in God's judgment is just, a is just as central to the Christian faith as faith in God's mercy. And God's justice doesn't go away in the gospel. It's not like the gospel comes and erases God's judgment. Furthermore, disbelief in God's judgment is central to wickedness and rebellion against God. You see this in the denial of hell and the denial of God's judgment. You see, the greatest pride, and Spurgeon actually says, he who disbelieves hell distrusts heaven. Okay? We don't take some parts of God's truth and of who God is and say, well, this one's more important. God's mercy is more important than God's justice. In fact, Spurgeon rightly draws the connection that judgment has to do with heaven and hell. Okay? And to deny hell is to deny heaven as well. Now, we can acknowledge that in general, but when things, things get uncomfortable, when they get specific, okay? break the arm of the wicked, shatter their teeth, Psalm 3, I think, aren't we just supposed to pray that everyone will be saved? Isn't this the loving thing to do? Just pray that God will have mercy on everyone. How can it be right to pray that God would break someone's arm? 
Let me give a few ways. One, it is merciful for God to crush oppressors. It is merciful for God to destroy the wicked for the sake of the oppressed. And He receives much glory from doing so. You can't read Scripture without seeing this. Have you read the Song of Moses in Exodus after God crushes the Egyptians in the Red Sea? What do the people do? Do they stand around and cry? No. They dance and they sing of God's victory. God's people celebrate when Haman is hung on that 70-foot gallows because he was the enemy of the Jews. It is merciful for God to crush oppressors for the sake of the oppressed. This is because God is the helper of the orphan. This is one of the most wonderful descriptions of God in Scripture. He is the helper of the orphan. And that's the statement that immediately precedes break the arm of the wicked. Okay? You, can't, you can't hold on to one and lose the other. And this is what Lewis, C.S. Lewis tries to do as he's parsing through the Psalms. He tries to hold on to the good parts, the pleasant parts, like God's the helper of the orphan, but get rid of the break the arm part. But they come back to back and we can't have one without the other. In fact, this is often how God delivers the orphan by breaking the arm of the one who would oppress him. God is a father to the fatherless and he protects those who are oppressed. And one way he does so is by destroying oppressors. And this is a good thing. Wouldn't it be wonderful for God to just break the arm of the abortionist down at Planned Parenthood so he couldn't kill any more children? This would be a good thing if God mercifully delivered children from their death, and just broke a man's arm. This would be a righteous thing for God to do. Further than this, God often uses the breaking of arms, which is to say the thwarting of wickedness through causing pain and suffering, to bring us to repentance. Has God ever used the pain of sin to instill in you a distaste for sin? Have you ever sinned and maybe literally suffered physically from your sin and thought, I'm not doing that again? That's from God when that happens. And it's a gift from God to cause you to hate your sin. Many young men are reckless and they think they're invincible, right? And God humbles many young men by just breaking an arm or a leg or a neck. And it brings us to repentance. It is merciful for God to, again, just break arms and just give us a little bit of suffering to cause us to turn away from sin. This is kind of God. Praying this way brings great comfort to the Christian. We never stop praying for God to be just. We never ask Him not to pour out His wrath. In fact, it is impossible for God to not pour out His wrath on sin. Even if you pray for the merciful salvation of the abortionist, which we should do, think about what you're really praying for. Are you praying for God to refrain from pouring out His wrath? Are you asking God to set aside His justice for a moment for the sake of this person who we want to be saved? Well, no, not if we believe the Gospel. God never forsakes His justice or forgets about His justice. Psalm 7.11 in the KJV says, God is angry with the wicked every day. He is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. God never forgets His justice. He will crush sin. He will pour out the just penalty for it. And we take comfort in God's judgment. It's only by knowing that God will judge rightly in the end that we can truly forgive others when we know it's in God's hand. And that's why we don't go break the arm of the abortionist. We ask God to do it. One of the ways we see that this is the prayer of a Christian is because these imprecations, these calling of God's judgment, continue in the New Testament. This is one way people will try to do a little sleight of hand and say, well, this is an Old Testament truth because we don't see it in the New Testament. 
We see this in the New Testament. Here are a few examples from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Galatians 1, again the Apostle Paul, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Damned is what Paul means, which is even stronger than break the arm of the wicked. If anyone should do this thing, let him be damned. Now, there's a couple of things to learn from the Apostle Paul's imprecations. One, judgment always resides with God. Okay? That is an important key to understanding these things. And this is true 100% of the time you look in the Psalms. What's being asked for is God to act. In Romans 12.9, we read, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Christian's comfort is always in God's judgment, not in our own. And Psalm 10 and all of the imprecatory psalms call upon God to be the judge. Secondly, as we saw in the Galatians example, the Apostle Paul calls down the same condemnation on himself as he does on the wicked. Should he give himself to the same wickedness? Did you hear that? Even if we should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have heard, let him be accursed. In other words, let me be accursed. Be damned if I should do this thing. And this is so important for us to realize as we pray these prayers in faith is that we are the wicked. Do you, Father, fantasize about what it would be like to be free of your wife and children? You murder your family. Do you, mother, envy the prosperity of the wicked? You envy the freedom of the mother who murders her child. If you do, you murder your child. Look in your heart and examine the depths of its wickedness. Are we reluctant to condemn the wickedness of others because we refuse to condemn our own? This might be the case. We might be harsh and judgmental and censorious and harshly judge others. But we may also come to passages like this and be uncomfortable with it, not because we're afraid to say it about somebody out there, but because we're afraid to look at ourselves and realize we're the murderers. Honestly, examine your heart. Maybe you haven't physically murdered your children. Maybe you have. But ask yourself if you are any different than those who have. Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, or you fool, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. The Apostle John writes to us and says, But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. He goes on later and says, Everyone who hates his brother, you listening, children? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We have to be honest about the darkness in our hearts. Calvin helpfully writes, If the Lord gave loose rein to the mind of each man to run riot in his lusts, there would doubtless be no one who would not show that in fact every evil thing for which Paul condemns all nature is most truly to be met in himself. Okay, If God did not restrain us, there were no restraint on our sin what destruction would be done. 
And I think this gets at the heart of why we can be so unwilling to pray these prayers of judgment, of imprecation on God's enemies. It's actually because we have a small view of our own sin. When it comes down to it, I'm uncomfortable praying God's judgment on someone else's sin because I haven't fully acknowledged what my sin deserves, which is to say what Christ received on my behalf. If you have a small view of your sin, you will be unwilling to believe that anyone deserves this sort of harsh treatment from God. But remember, if you're a Christian, Christ literally paid for your guilt. His body was broken for your sake. The breaking of a body, which is something we cry out for in this psalm, is something that really happened to Jesus Christ. Because it's what the wicked deserve. God didn't just overlook your sin. Your sin had a price to pay. And that price was the price of murder and adultery and blasphemy. Because we are murderers and adulterers and blasphemers. When we ask God to save a sinner, we must remember that we're never asking God to simply forget about his justice. That would not be in his character. No, when you ask God to save someone, you're still begging him to pour out his full wrath on sin. When you pray for the repentance of anyone, you're asking God to destroy their sin and punish it, but you're asking him to do it in his son rather than on that person. This is a fearful and wonderful truth that should help us not just think flippantly about the gospel, but how weighty it is that God would punish the sins of the world in His Son. And praying this way for others should remind us of the reality of our own sin. When you come to God to ask for, for ask forgiveness, do you remember that you're asking God to nail that sin through the hands of His beloved Son? Do you remember that you're asking God to heal you by the stripes on Christ's back? When you come to God seeking forgiveness, do you acknowledge that you truly deserved that penalty? Are you earnestly asking God to crucify your sinful self and put your sinful self to death? Because that is the only way to be saved. In order to have eternal life, you must be crucified with Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's get to this last section of the psalm here, verse 16. The psalmist comforts himself with the hope of God's rule and final justice. And ultimately, this is what we must rest in. Listen to this. The Lord is king forever and ever. We may feel like the Lord is not reigning right now because we see the oppression of the afflicted. But remember, I love this. Second half of verse 16, nations have perished from his land. Whose land do we live on? This land is my land. This land is your land. It's not ours. It's God's. Right? When do nations rise and fall? When God says so. What a helpful reminder to know that God is king. And there may be times where we feel less like he's ruling and reigning, but he is king forever and ever, which means he was king long before our nation was around. And he'll be king long after our nation is gone. And what a wonderful thing for God to be the one who causes the rise and fall of nations. Man continues to cause terror on the face of the earth through his wickedness and oppression of the helpless. But who is God? He is the one who hears the desire of the humble. He loves the orphan and the oppressed. A couple of questions to finish out. God loves the weak, the humble, the orphan, the oppressed. The question is, are we willing to be the orphan and the oppressed? Are we willing to commit ourselves to God and acknowledge that we have nothing? Are we ashamed of our weakness, and do everything in our life to hide our weakness so that we won't need God? Or do we come to him as little children desperately in need and say, I have nothing without you? Are we willing to boast in our weakness? 
Second, are we willing to love the orphan and the oppressed? Will we be like God and love the most vulnerable and afflicted around us? Will we love and visit the sick? Will we speak out for the voiceless unborn who continue to be slaughtered by their own parents? And along with that, it's not just will we speak, but almost more importantly, will we pray for the vindication of the oppressed? Will we look for and rejoice in God's righteous retribution on the wicked? We will join with our fathers in the faith if we do pray for this. We finish with this quote by a pastor, R.L. Dabney. He says, Righteous retribution is one of the glories of the divine character. If it is right that God should desire to exercise it, then it cannot be wrong for His people to desire Him to exercise it. In other words, if it's right for God to judge, it's right for us to want Him to judge and to pray that He will judge. Inasmuch as retribution is righteously inflicted by God, it must be right in Him and must therefore be when in His hand a proper subject of satisfaction to the godly. This is a psalm for us. And all of these psalms that we get to that sound like this are psalms for the Christian because we turn to God We don't take vengeance and violence into our own hands, but we turn to God and put our faith in Him and we cry out for the vindication of the oppressed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are coming to judge the quick and the dead. We believe this. And we pray for that to come quickly, Lord. We pray that You would come, that You would not delay Your coming but that You would put an end to the bloodshed which surrounds us. However You see fit, Lord, we pray that You would judge this wickedness, that You would hear the cry of the blood of the innocent from our land, from Your land. It belongs to You and we have polluted it with the blood of our children. Forgive our many sins, Lord. We praise You and thank You for dying the death of a murderer because that is what we needed. We thank You for Your great love for sinners like us. We come to You with humble hearts, bowing down, praying for Your kindness and forgiveness and for Your strength that we might stand up for the oppressed and the afflicted and that we might not have blind eyes to look past those who need to be helped. Help us to start with our own families and love those who are right in front of us. And then take on more and more responsibility until we have great honor and blessing from you in heaven. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.